and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning. Our website is consumerchoiceradio.com. There you can follow all of the recent episodes, subscribe to the podcast version, check out all of our show notes, and also catch up on all of the previous previous guests that we've had on the program. I am one half of your hosting duo, Yael Ososki, coming to you from Vienna, Austria, and I'm joined by David Clement in Toronto. David, how you doing, man? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, very excited for this week's show. Uh, great guests, lots to, lots to talk about. Um, yeah, so thank you for everyone who has, uh, has joined in and tuned in. Um, another great week ahead of us. So for, you know, a lot of people listening, they might not know, David, but, um, you know, I can hear you kind of catching your breath. It's been a busy week at the Consumer Choice Center. <laughs> How you been doing there? It's, it's, uh, it has been a busy week. Tell uh, us what it's like in the average week of a uh, consumer uh, advocate and what you need to do. What are the, you know, the time <laughs> crunches and pressures on people like us? Yeah. So yeah, for me personally, it's been quite the week. Um, I had a, a syndicated opinion article published in the Financial Post um, on housing and zoning. Um, that was actually then republished in 50 other outlets uh, here in Canada. Um, I had an op-ed co-authored on South Africa's um, alcohol and tobacco ban during COVID-19 an op-ed published on the FDA and outdated regulations. Uh, I got the chance to appear on um, South African national television talking about their ban, um, as well as the chance to appear on um, Global News to Alberta, which is a big TV station in Alberta, to talk about uh, a healthcare change, uh, specifically paid plasma in uh, Alberta. So it has been a whirlwind um, of a week. Uh, yeah, just uh, just another week uh, as a member of the Consumer Choice Center, though. That's what it takes to be a consumer uh, advocate and activist. <laughs> Good God. Uh, look, at what did we have? We have paid plasma, healthcare, FDA, prohibition on alcohol and tobacco in a place like South Africa. So running up and down uh, North America, but also on the African continent as well so yes definitely good busy week and uh, yeah. a lot of uh, great publications out there uh, you can follow a lot of this stuff obviously on consumerchoicecenter.org or g where you have a lot of the updates consumer choice radio is a product of the uh, consumer choice center so so much more out there and i know mm -hmm. david um, we've got a lot on our minds but i think uh, we wanted to spin it um, a little bit and throw it to our invited guest for yes. this uh, this hour that we have. We have a pretty wide-ranging interview that I'll let you introduce. And uh, man, there's a lot of stuff covered there. Hopefully all yeah. of you listening will appreciate it. And if you continue listening, uh, you'll, you'll get some more feedback and other things that uh, we're kind of discussing in the background. So uh, David, yes. tell us what it's all about. Yeah, so this week's guest is Fleming Rose. Um, and so if you're listening and you do not know who Fleming Rose is, you will likely know um, what has kind of brought him um, to the, the public conversation over the last uh, 15 years. And that was the uh, Muhammad cartoon crisis. Um, so the, the background really quick on that is he was the editor of the newspaper who published uh, the Muhammad cartoons, which obviously caused uh, a scandal internationally. He has been affiliated with the Cato Institute since then, has done a lot of great work on uh, freedom of speech and expression. And so very excited to have him on the program, uh, ask him obviously about a couple of those things, but then also talk about some more contemporary um, speech and expression issues and what his take is. So definitely a friend of a sh friend of the show. Um, and I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Jamie, play the clip. I've been moving calm, don't start no trouble with me. Trying to keep it peaceful is a struggle for me. Don't pull up at 6 a.m. to cuddle with me. All right, I am very excited to uh, introduce our next guest on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, Fleming Rose is a Danish journalist 
a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He was previously uh, the foreign affairs editor and the culture, culture editor for Jyllands Posten in Denmark. Uh, and he is uh, quite notably uh, one of the individuals uh, involved and, and uh, implicated in the Yul's Postin Muhammad cartoons controversy um, that that kind of swept the world uh, years ago. Uh, Fleming Rose, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. And so, how um, how has life been in Denmark throughout COVID? Uh, how is everything? You're based in Copenhagen, correct? I'm based in Copenhagen, yes. Yeah, so what is life like in Denmark right now? Well, life is pretty nice. Um, Denmark has reopened uh, almost completely. Uh, but we were also one of the first countries to go into lockdown. Um, I mean, there are disagreements about the pace and the um, range of, uh, of this lockdown. Uh, we have a social democratic uh, government, uh, left of center, um, and their voters are primarily not among, you know, private businesses. Uh, and you you might say that they have been looking more after their own voters than after uh, small and medium-sized uh, private businesses. But that's, you know, that's about details and speed and how comprehensive you, you think this this uh, needs to be but but basically Denmark has done pretty well I don't, I don't think it's so much due to the government but it's 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 a question about individual discipline and uh, um, you know securing uh, physical uh, distancing and uh, and going into quarantine if you have symptoms and not mixing uh, with the public and, and, and things like that. Uh, so Denmark has very few cases, in fact, at, at the moment. And I think for some time, no registered uh, deaths uh, with uh, COVID-19 for, for quite some time. Yeah, you're very lucky. It's much like Austria. I think we're doing pretty good. Um, Fleming, of course, uh, we would not be here if we did not plug your book, The Tyranny of Silence how one cartoon ignited a global debate on the future of free speech. Um, thankfully, I have mine signed, actually. I'm very lucky. Um, so one do thing, I. Yeah, very good. One thing yeah. I wanted to ask you, uh, Fleming, is, is to kind of give a background, because I think there's, there, it's a very interesting moment in that we've been locked in our homes. Uh, we've kind of migrated our lives online, and people are paying attention to media and to global affairs, I think more now than they might have ever had. Maybe uh, last time was 9-11, the last time that we paid attention this much. Um, just to, to go back to your book, and uh, we want to get into the bigger thesis of it and kind of the story, but um, if you could just give the listeners who might not be familiar with you just a quick synopsis as to how you rose to prominence, uh, why your name is so well known, and why you've had uh, security details that have been following you the last couple of years and why many might view you well, in the journalism the profession. Almost 15 years now. Yeah. But on uh, and off, well, for, the first, for the past five years, I have lived the security around the clock 24-7. And, and that was after the attack in Paris on, uh, on Charlie Hebdo. That changed the whole you know, security landscape in, in Europe. Uh, from 2005... Uh, the time of the publication of the cartoons until 2015, I had security on and off. Um, but since 2015, it's been a permanent feature of my life. But what, you know, I, I'm trained as a foreign correspondent. That, that was my profession. And um, I, I graduated in Russian language and literature. I worked at the Danish Refugee Council with uh, refugees from the former Soviet Union, uh, Jews uh, first and foremost, uh, Jewish immigration. And I, through that work, I got in touch with dissidents and you know, people in exile, uh, people who had spent time in, in labor camps and in prison for 
descending from uh, Marxism, Leninism, or being critical of uh, of the Soviet regime. And and these people became the heroes of my life, and it's been a point of reference. You know, my outlook and my understanding of of the world is very much informed my ex by my experience with dissidents and and my life in the Soviet Union. I was there as a student at the height of the Cold War. So, so fast forward, uh, I came back to Denmark in 2004 after having spent 14 years as a foreign correspondent in, in Moscow and in Washington, D.C. And I'm the culture editor. And then we have um, a debate about, um, about self-censorship when it comes to the coverage of Islam in, 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 um, in, in Danish and European culture. Um, you know, plays being taken off, uh, exhibitions being cancelled, uh, uh, editors who are afraid of uh, being critical of uh, Islam. And we have this children's book uh, in Denmark about the life of the prophet. And the writer goes on record saying, you know, I'm, I've written this book, but I had big difficulties finding an illustrator uh, for my book. And to me, that reminded me of what I had seen in the Soviet Union. In, in fact, I mean, in the beginning of the Soviet regime, you had a lot of violence and you have, uh, uh, you know, descenders being killed, mass killings. But, but at the time when I lived with there, uh, I mean, you had a lot of surveillance, uh, but, 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 but dissidents who were willing to speak their minds, you know, they may, maybe they were just a couple of hundred people or 500,000 people because everybody had internalized and self-censored so they did not um, break with the official party line. And, and that's the way um, a dictatorship functions. You intimidate the public space uh, and people internalize the unwritten uh, rules. You might have the freedom of expression on the books, but uh, people internal, but, but you intimidate uh, and, and, and persecute, prosecute people for expressing the wrong opinions. Um, and, and I was not sure at the time whether, you know, this self-censoring going on with this children books was based in a real fear, a, a fear that was based in reality, or it was just a fiction of uh, illustrators' mind uh, that they were afraid of what might happen to them if they say or do something. So they were the questions that were on my mind when, when I, in order to approach this story, uh, invited uh, members of the Car Danish Cartoonist Association to draw the prophet as they see him. An, an open, very neutral invitation uh, and following a classical journalistic uh, principle, don't tell, show. Before I invited the cartoonist, uh, we have had several stories about this incident in, in, in my newspaper and in other newspapers. Uh, so this was part of a follow-up uh, exercise. Um, and to me, it was a classical uh, journalistic exercise in the sense you hear about a problem. In this case, is there self-censorship or not when it comes to um, coverage, the coverage of Islam? Uh, and you want to find out if it's true or not. Uh, and I just, you know, we just chose maybe an unorthodox way of approaching this story by inviting cartoonists to show through their medium of uh, work, uh, how they relate to this problem. And I received 12 cartoons out of, I think 25, from, from about 25 active members of this association. And two weeks later, we published uh, this full page and I wrote a short text outlining the, motiva the motivation and with a reference to my experience in the Soviet Union where you could go to jail for telling a joke. Um, and yeah, the rest is history. And so, I mean, obviously life changed very much for you after 
um, the crisis. Uh, I mean, embassies were burned. There were mass protests. Yeah. That, um, that, that was only, in fact, uh, four months later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, yep. it, was, it was pretty quiet. Uh, but in, within a week or two, there was a demonstration in Copenhagen. Um, I mean, it was a, a majority of them were Danish Muslims, uh, but mm -hmm. but 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 there was no call for violence. Uh, it 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 all came later uh, when some of the imams representing the Muslim community in Denmark they traveled to um, Lebanon and Egypt and later to Mecca uh, to make their case to Muslim majority countries in order to put pressure on the Danish government. Uh, mm -hmm. That only happened. In January 2006, the cartoons were published in September 2005. And so, I mean, this is a this is a good segue to kind of two moments that you've already mentioned in your life. The first being the cartoon crisis, and the second being the Charlie Hebdo attack. When I mean, post Charlie Hebdo attack, the world appeared to rally around the concept of free expression. <laughs> The ideas that um, the idea that words do not uh, deserve a response with violence, and that ideas, including and especially religious ideas, um, deserve to be put under a microscope and, in some senses, ridiculed or, or uh, made fun of, which is their brand. Where, what do you think has happened since um, 2015 and those attacks and the global response and where we see that censorship um, and that, that mentality kind of manifest itself today. Where do you think we went astray between then and now? In fact, um, a, a week after the Charlie Hebdo uh, attack, I think 4 million people marched in, uh, marched in, in Paris and among them, uh, global leaders. Uh, um, but I was very uh, skeptic already at that moment because I had, li I had lived the cartoon crisis. Uh, and it was a kind of Diana moment, I, I think, uh, in the sense that, that you can go out and you can show uh, support by marching through the streets of Paris for one day. But the real test is when you get back into the newsrooms and you have to make editorial decisions. And it turned out, you know, quite quickly, uh, the support for Charlie Hebdo uh, evaporated uh, when it comes to specific decisions about what to publish and not to publish. And I would say that in, 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 in Europe today, and not only Europe, I think we have an unwritten blasphemy law in the sense that even though we don't have blasphemy laws on the books, we have it in real life because people are afraid of, um, of, of, of publishing cartoons ridiculing the Prophet Muhammad. It's not because I think it's, it's nice and maybe always the right thing to do, but it's just part of European tradition. Religious satire was part and parcel of the enlightenment and, and the, the, the challenging of, uh, of the dominance of the Catholic Church in, in, in Europe uh, several hundred years ago. And I don't see any reason why we should treat Islam differently uh, compared to uh, Christianity, but 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 this unwritten blasphemy law is is a fact of life uh, today. And I think in in general, I mean, it's not just about Islam. I think it's a broader issue. And and if you look at at um, Freedom House. Reporters Without Borders, uh, The Economist uh, Freedom Index, and, and, and other surveys on the status of freedom of expression, you can see that within the past 10, 15 years, we've seen a gradual decline in the support for freedom of expression uh, around the world. And I think the, the new uh, worrying trend is that this is also happening in liberal democracies like uh, Canada, Denmark, uh, Germany, France, and the United States. And uh, one thing, Fleming, that you know we've obviously discussed here is 
that idea of free expression. And uh, one thing that I haven't really read you comment on yet is this idea of fake news. Um, you know, I, I had even forgotten the Charlie Hebdo and all the world leaders, you know, standing there in Paris behind the huge banner. I'd forgotten about that. And then not more than two, three, four years later, all of these leaders are passing their own legislation on fake news or determining what's real. Um, sort of what is your opinion of this? I mean, having lived in the Soviet Union, having reported at that time, uh, what do you think about this new kind of self-censorship that we might have of fake news or people being designated as fake news? What do you think about that? I, I, I've written about it. Uh, I, I've written a couple of pieces about that, and 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 it fits very well into my Soviet experience uh, because uh, the, the dissidents behind the Iron Curtain, the vast majority of them, were in fact convicted for disseminating um, deliberate false information about uh, the Soviet system. So this is a classical. Um, uh, tool in uh, in a dictatorship to silence uh, dissenting voices, and and I was flabbergasted that that uh, you know Germany, um, uh, Italy, and other countries uh, were willing to go down this uh, path to legislate uh, about uh, uh, what is true and false. I mean, you know that in. Germany and France, they have Holocaust denial laws on uh, on the books. I'm against them. I've spoken out against them. But uh, um, but 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 these laws, you can understand them maybe in a historical context. Even though I was very much surprised to find out that the vast majority of these laws were in fact passed after the fall of the Berlin Wall. I would. I would have suspected that they had been passed in the 60s or the 50s in the aftermath of World War II and and the Holocaust and the genocide against the Jews of Europe. But it only happened after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, I think one one point on that, because in Austria, we have incredibly strict, um, obviously, anti-Holocaust laws. From what it seems is there was a this attempt by many of the political and media elites at the time to sort of wash away, because uh, there had been a lot of ex-Nazis um, and people who were involved in the SS and things who were in, in large positions of power, specifically in Austria more so. So it's like it took a while for this kind of shame and guilt to build up before you have these laws, which I, I think we would agree with you are terrible laws anyway, uh, definitely stifling any kind of free speech it's not a thing that none of us, we're not going to support these views, uh, but it's just about what is the role of the state in sort of saying we're not allowed to say extra. But you know, Yale, I I think it's not only about stifling free speech. I think it's fact, it's also counterproductive to, if you want to fight the opinions uh, behind these, uh, this kind of speech. For instance, if you take uh, Muslim immigration to Europe uh, within the past 20 years, Many of these people come from countries where Holocaust denial is a fact of life. You know, that's what they are being taught in schools. And then they come to Europe with these convictions and they are not allowed to air these uh, outrageous uh, opinions. So how are you then going to be able to change them? Uh, I mean, I think, I think you, you, you will not, I, I haven't, I haven't seen any example of people changing their minds just because their opinions were criminalized. Good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I also think it's an, in, 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 in not a very effective way to, uh, to fight Holocaust denial, even though I understand perfectly well that it's, it's it's deeply offensive mm-hmm. to uh, descendants or living Holocaust survivors to be exposed to this kind of speech. I can understand that it's painful, it's it's very unpleasant, but I just don't think it's the best way to um, uh, to to change people's minds uh, through criminalization of their opinions, as long as they do not. Um, 
imply incitement to violence. And mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think Holocaust denial equals uh, incitement to violence uh, in, in Europe today. Yeah, it's one of those things where I've kind of always held that the, the best disinfectant for a lot of these bad ideas is sunlight, is, is letting them be seen, letting them be argued against and countered. Um, which kind of which leads me very much into my next question, which um, is what ha recently happened with the New York Times. Uh, for our listeners who maybe didn't know, uh, the New York Times published a op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton, arguing that um, the military should be used to uh, calm the riots. Uh, the New York Times has a long history of publishing heads of states, diplomats, sitting senators. Uh, very controversial people, Putin, <laughs> like Vladimir Putin and Nicolas Maduro, and um, and and other. Uh, and of the Taliban, in fact. Yes, exactly. Yeah, members of the Taliban. Um, the editor, the opinion editor, was then uh, fired after backlash um, as a result of publishing uh, Mr. Cotton's op-ed. So, what is your take on? that um, that pressure, that push to cancel or fire or uh, punish people for, I mean, I think that Tom Cotton is an idiot and I think that his op-ed was poorly written and poorly argued and uh, I think that he's generally wrong, mm -hmm. um, but I appreciated being able to see his point of view in the paper of record um, for the US. So what's your take on that progression and, and that culture that's slowly building in American media outlets, but also international media outlets? Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's very sad and it's also frightening. I'm not in the U.S. at the moment, but I, I, I spend time in the U.S. every now and then. And, and there is a very polarized uh, public uh, climate. But I, I mean, I, I, I think, um, and I agree with your criticism of, of Tim Cotton, uh, uh, that, that I don't think it, it, it would be wise to uh, send in the army. And it also turned out that the demonstrations became more quiet and uh, without, without uh, deploying uh, the armed forces uh, in the US. But, but I mean, this is a member of the Senate. It's, it's a politician who is close to President Trump. And his point of view, as far as I understand, is supported by 58% of uh, the US uh, population. Uh, I mean, I would like to, uh, to read that in the paper record. Um, and, and I think it's, 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 it's a little bit similar to, uh, to the Holocaust denial, except for the fact that you don't have high-ranking politicians in Western Europe who are Holocaust deniers today. I mean, these are fringe opinions, uh, uh, but, but, but this is a very powerful individual. Uh, and and uh, if, you, if you disagree with him, uh, I think it's important that uh, the readers of the New York Times uh, um, uh, have the opportunity to read what he thinks and then argue against him. And it's, it reminds me a little bit of the Catholic Church uh, in, 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 in uh, 1500, 1600s uh, Europe, where the Catholic Church for, for decades and centuries, they killed her heretics or they, uh, um, they banned uh, any, any kind of... Uh, of uh, of dissent and then finally when martin luther um, ascended uh, and came forward with an alternative interpretation of the bible uh, the catholics had very little uh, to counter his arguments with because everything had had turned into dogma uh, you know we are right because we are right this is the truth because we know it is the truth why uh, you, 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 lo you, you lose the ability to make your case 
in a coherent uh, um, and well articulated way if you don't if you don't provide space to opinions with which you disagree uh, and then it just turns into dogma and then when you finally are confronted that and there's no no other way to go you are not able to make your case so so it's and, and that's also one of the reasons why I think it's wrong to criminalize Holocaust denial. You have to exercise your arguments against the people with whom you disagree. Otherwise, uh, you, you, you lose your ability to make a coherent case against the opinions that you don't like. I mean, this is classical uh, John Stuart Mill uh, uh, on, on, on Liberty, uh, chapter two, I think. Uh, um, uh, but, 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 but the climate is so polarized in the United States. And, and when you, I think the way it was framed within the New York Times was, you know, this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of security of our uh, employees. But this is also the way a dictatorship and uh, authoritarian regime argues. Uh, they always play the security card and say we have to, we have to, without making any, you know, uh, analogies between the New York Times or a dictatorship, I'm not saying that. I'm just talking about uh, uh, the mental processes that are going on here. Uh, and the way arguments are being framed, because there are there are dissenters within the New York Times who have been able to voice their disagreement in in the opinion pages. Uh, uh, Brett Stevens and and Ross Stoat, uh, classical conservative voices. Uh, uh, so it's not that 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 everything has been silenced, but 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 this security argument, I think, is very dangerous. Because if if you if you if you turn every question into an issue of life and death, of course of course you will always say then we have to uh, then we have to uh, uh, shut down these voices because is it's a matter of life and death and and what how can you argue against that? Um, so we had to prioritize prioritize security no matter uh, the cost to freedom of expression. And I think you just have to be. Very, when, when people are using these arguments, all alarm bells have to, uh, to ring. Yeah, you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Fleming Rose. He is the author of The Tyranny of Silence. You can find that at your uh, local bookstore or online or wherever else you can support, uh, specifically the website. We'll link to that in all of our show notes. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up, Fleming, is, is obviously everything with the media. And, you know, people are talking about um, that there might be violence or that these words are violence. I mean, this is incredibly just, all of it is ironic because uh, you're someone who has a, a writer, a journalist, an editor, a translator. It, it doesn't just face, you know, these fake uh, threats of violence, but real ones. And uh, I know David and I have both been around you and uh, we've, we've dealt with uh, security details and all the negotiations and things like that. And here are here we are in 2020 uh, where we're hearing newspaper uh, I mean, people who work at the New York Times who are saying that my security is is being threatened because of this uh, op-ed, I wanted to, this is obviously a moral panic, and that's what I want to get your I thoughts think on. I that's a very good uh, description, yes. And we're very good at that in the United States. We have a moral panic every couple of years. Uh, we had vaping just a couple uh, months ago, just a year ago, feels like a world ago. Um, but now we have one that is related to speech and words as violence. And specifically because so many of us have been, again, locked in our homes, we've had a pandemic, we were told by our governments to stay inside, to be responsible. Um, and then we're seeing that at a turn of a hat, there's uh, something that happens that is tragic, that is the death of George Floyd and these protests that are even in, in Denmark. I actually read that in Denmark, there were a couple of people who had tested positive for corona. So there might be I some. Participated in uh, in a demonstration. Uh, that's true. Uh, this past uh, Sunday. And this is a, another thing. Was because you had the the, the left protested uh, demonstrations uh, against the lockdowns, and then they when they wanted to demonstrate uh, for the right cause, then it was no problem. Uh, so there was a bit of hypocrisy. Cool. Uh, um, and that was always what shocked me is that uh, you can fully support the Black Lives Matter movement. You can fully support the protests, 
but still at the same time acknowledge that COVID-19 doesn't care what you're out on the streets protesting for, no, whether it's a I, I, at all. Yeah, but I think you have, you have different uh, opinions. I mean, we, 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 we get new knowledge as we move along. I think nobody knows uh, everything about COVID-19, uh, um, how people are infected, uh, how serious it is and, or, or, or not serious. Uh, but I think you have to be consistent in your arguments uh, when you talk about lockdown and 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 public gatherings. You you, you can't say it just because I'm 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 demonstrating for the right cause, then I have to have a right to violate the lockdown, and I don't have that right if I'm protesting protesting for the wrong cause. I just want people to be consistent. And there's probably going to be way more of this, obviously. And there's kind of a reckoning that's happening. And I bring this up because this is happening not just in the United States, but also in Europe. Um, there's a lot of conversations about race and religion and the rights of minorities. And as, it's as if it's not a real conversation. It's, it's sort of being forced. And uh, there is a great, you know, little L liberal way to discuss these things in a very open democratic fashion. But what we're seeing seems to me like very much like you prescribed in your book. It's this kind of idea that people are now self-censoring and following along with a certain narrative that they're not allowed to criticize. Mm -hmm. And we see it in the elite media. Um, and that doesn't necessarily affect Joe Blow and someone who might be working in their nine to five job. But you know, it's getting more serious, you might end up with a circumstance where our, all of our jobs might be threatened because of a, of a certain thought or something we have in mind. And I think that's very much part of your thesis of the book. Yes. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, <clears throat> I think it has to do with human nature. And, and one of the things I've learned over the past 15 years is that 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 free speech or uh, tolerance they are not the not the default positions of human nature <laughs> uh, 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 democracy tolerance freedom of expression they are in fact experiments experiments that in many ways goes against human nature um, and 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 in in many cases people's instinctive reaction to speech that they don't like is to shut it down uh, so, so, so freedom of expression and tolerance are a matter of practice and education. Um, and it's, it's not easy. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's painful, but I think it's, it's, it's the only way um, that humanity has discovered to, to manage diversity and disagreement without resorting to violence, intimidation, and threats. And it means not only free speech for me, but also for thee. Uh, but usually it's only for me, but not for people with whom I, I, I disagree. And, and I think here also in, 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 in the New York Times story, and in general, you have this hurt mentality that has been um, reinforced by social media and everybody sitting at home, home maybe uh, identity politics and, and and things like that, and and it's sometimes it feels good to to be part of a group. Yeah, you 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 feel that you belong. It's also important part of human nature. You have this this sense of of community and 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 things like that. And it's 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 never easy to go against, you know, the grain, uh, to speak out in a group where you, where you know that what you're going to say now is going to make people uncomfortable and maybe uh, people will look at you and say, this guy is crazy or... So, so I, 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 think, I think what we need to understand is the importance of protecting dissent in any group. You know, I mean, students for liberty or, or libertarians, we all have, uh, no matter where we are, we have this uh, instinct that, um, that, that it's difficult to, um, to, to accept dissenting opinions. And we have this hurt mentality. And we always have to remind ourselves that, 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 that social psychology studies, in fact, shows that that if you are able to create space for dissent, 
you will you will you will reach better uh, solutions to uh, the problems you are you are facing but this goes against human nature and we have to we have to uh, learn it and relearn it uh, uh, over and over again uh, it's it's never a settled issue and it's also why freedom of expression you can you, you you can never take it for granted it's uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 not nature it's it's culture and i think that perfectly leads into some of the discussion about covid-19 and the response because and I assume that it was probably somewhat similar in Denmark. Uh, it was certainly this way in North America, where anyone who spoke, as you quote, against the grain, um, was very quickly chastised, or in many, in some instances, canceled or deplatformed, simply for saying that there may be another approach, um, and for maybe questioning, let's say, the the uh, the model that was designed. Um, and things well, like that. In Denmark, yeah. Yeah. So you 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 did have the same Absolutely. pushback against those who are critical. I think it just highlights how, and you you put it so nicely there that by allowing for dissent, you can come to better solutions because you can you can maybe but chip away. Your mind, even even uh, Tim Cotton, with whom we disagree, uh, dissenting voices, even if they are wrong, and stupid and outrageous. They force us us to to open our mind and 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 consider other uh, other options, and that's very healthy. No matter whether we are confronting an opinion that we uh, deeply dislike. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it goes back to the quote that uh, an enlightened mind is one that can uh, entertain an idea with it without accepting it, uh, which is exactly like Tom Cotton's op-ed where you can read it. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to accept it, but at least now your, uh, your opposing viewpoint is their cards are on the table. You can see what they stand for. And you can work out a coherent argument to counter it uh, instead of just saying, you know, this is so stupid, so I will not even engage with it, um, which I think is 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 the wrong way but i saw an uh, uh, opinion writer at the new york times express exactly that point of view uh, because cotton had watered down his uh, opinions a bit compared to the way he expressed them on 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 twitter yeah and i mean the thing the thing that struck me about tom cotton is that what he wrote in the new york times was not even remotely close to the most most controversial thing that he has said. I mean, he went so far as to say there should be no quarter for uh, rioters, uh, which is basically military jargon for no prisoners, no prisoners of war, like execute on site, which is pretty wild to hear from, um, from a senator. But again, it's one of those things where if you, he, he puts his ideas out on paper, we can all read it, we can uh, counter it, we can laugh at it um, and, and, and think that it's, it's silly and, and then better formulate and, and, and a response. Maybe even, and, and maybe even Tim Cotton can learn from that experience. I mean, by exposing his point of view to the New York Times readers and the kind of responses he received, he may uh, um, correct this line of argumentation a little bit, and that's in fact what he did uh, through this editing uh, 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 process. He made a distinction between rioters and protesters, uh, which he apparently didn't do in, uh, on his Twitter. But he's still and, kind of emboldened as well by kind of the backlash. Now he yes. feels as if, you know, more people are on his side. And I think they even commissioned polls, uh, which again, I don't know who does these polls, but now that it's like, oh yeah, the majority of the American public is all in favor of this. Uh, Fleming, there has to be some some positive things that we're looking forward to. Um, you got to give us something that we can uh, we can see as rosy. I think you've lived through darker days, no doubt, uh, having having covered a lot of the old East-West divide. So, is there um, great positive news that you think we can cling to in the 21st century and things we can be excited about? 
Oh, I think there is a lot of, uh, I mean, positive news out there. We 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 shouldn't forget that. Uh, I mean, if you read uh, Steven Pinker or Matt Ridley or um, my Swedish colleague at the Cato Institute, uh, Johan Norberg, uh, the world has never been in a better shape. I mean, we are living longer, we are more healthy, uh, we are richer uh, than ever. Uh, we have. We live more equal lives in spite of uh, all the inequality that uh, still exists. But, uh, uh, and I, I would say for myself, I mean, I feel privileged, even though I, 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 I live with security, I have the Danish state behind me. Uh, if, if I had been living uh, uh, behind the Iron Curtain and uh, was up against uh, the Soviet state, uh, I would be in a very different situation. Uh, you know, I didn't lose my job. Uh, I didn't have to to immigrate. Uh, um, so, so I, I mean, I, I think life is pretty cool. <laughs> um, uh, I enjoy it. I hope you do. You do too. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's one thing that we've always kind of highlighted on our show is uh, we certainly complain about a lot of things, but it is important to sit back and also remember that. Uh, in terms of human history, there has never been a better time to be alive. Uh, and the folks that you mentioned, like Norberg and, and, um, and Matt Ridley, really do highlight that. Uh, so in wrapping up, uh, Fleming, what is next for you? What are you working on? Um, what is new and exciting in, in your life? And what does a post-COVID Fleming Rose look like? <laughs> um, well, right now I'm working on a big article for... Um for Cato about content moderation, the, the big issue on, uh, on digital platforms. Uh, what, what kind of rules should we apply for regulating speech uh, on, on, uh, on digital platforms? You know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Google, uh, Reddit, they all have community standards, community rules, and Facebook has just appointed uh, an oversight board, and my Cato colleague, uh, John Samples, ha has been appointed to uh, Facebook's oversight board. And, and the debate right now is about international human rights law. Should we apply international human rights law? And there is a very, there are very powerful and influential voices in the US. Um, and around the world, uh, making the case for international human rights standards as the standard for regulating speech online. And I'm I'm skeptical. <clears throat> I'm skeptical. Uh, I would prefer a First Amendment uh, standard uh, for regulating speech online. And I think there is a profound difference, especially when it comes to so-called hate speech that you can criminalize in, in Canada, in Austria, uh, in, in most countries around the world, but not in the United States. It's not because I'm in favor of hateful speech, but I think it's not a legal category and it's very easy to use as a tool to silence uh, dissenting uh, uh, voices. So I'm, I'm trying to <clears throat> write a paper and make the case for First Amendment standards uh, as the standard for regulating speech online. And, and then I'm working on a short book about, uh, it was originally was about multiculturalism and free speech for uh, graduate students. But I think it, it's, it's, you know, so many things happened since uh, 2015. <laughs> so I, I think I'm focusing on identity, diversity and culture as three different discourses that are being used as, as veiled censorship tools. That if you criticize people's identity, if you, if you, if you criticize the concept of diversity, uh, the way it is being used, or people's culture, then, uh, then you, you, you don't have a right to freedom of expression to put it very, you know, uh, simply, but, but, but it's a complicated argument, but I, 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 think, I, I think these discourses are being used to delegitimize uh, criticism uh, and they undermine freedom of expression and tolerance, which I think, I think tolerance, in fact, is a, is a, a key concept that we have to recover. 
and reintroduce in order to be able to manage the growing diversity uh, in our societies of religion, ethnicity uh, and culture uh, without violence, intimidations and, and threats. But unfortunately, it's, 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 it's not a popular concept uh, in, in, in certain quarters, but I think we need to rehabilitate it in order for diversity uh, to survive in the 21st century. Well, uh, that's, a, that's a great way to close. Uh, in, in, uh, in the spirit of tolerance, thank you for tolerating uh, our two ugly mugs um, for, for the better part of well, an hour. A difficult task, David. Okay, well, <laughs> but we appreciate it. Um, we'll certainly uh, keep an eye out for your latest works, and we hope to have you back on the show down the road to discuss. And buy this book, Tyranny of Silence, Fleming Rose. Thank you. Exactly. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Hey, talk you. with everything. Hey. Mm -hmm. She say, do you love me? I tell her only partly. I only love my bed and my mom. I'm sorry. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. Wow, what a great interview with Fleming Rose. Awesome guy. Um, definitely someone to follow. Someone who is, I know David and I have been following for a long time, and someone who... Um, you know, doesn't he does not dabble in the fantasy world of uh, speech is violence. He's someone who actually has real threats against him yeah. for standing and, up for free speech. And one thing I wish we had gotten into. So the first time that I had met Fleming in person, um, we were inviting him to speak. And, and I, I'll, I tell this story just to actually give like a, a background on how serious um, some of these threats are to him for his role in the cartoon crisis. So uh, he was coming to speak in an event we were hosting in Maryland. Um, I immediately got a email uh, and request for a conversation from Danish Secret Service. Um, so Denmark's kind of foreign service uh, office. Um, they then looped in the FBI, um, who also looped in local law enforcement. Uh, we picked up Fleming at the airport. Um, we were trailed by law enforcement for the entirety of his time in Maryland. Um, we went to dinner and two, um, two uh, visible cop cars and one unmarked uh, police vehicle uh, waited outside of the restaurant. Well, don't give uh, away all the secrets now, David. <laughs> wow. Um, and, and it was essentially constant. And before he was speaking at the event, um, they were sending in uh, bomb sniffing dogs and all sorts of things that you wouldn't expect for someone um, like Fleming. And it really highlighted um, the gravity of the situation for me at the time. And obviously um, I can, I've considered him a friend ever since then. Um, but I don't think it, when he says he he's under 24 hour security and I describe the FBI and secret service and all of those things, um, a lot of people get a negative reaction from that because they just view, okay, well, that means that he's a bad guy, the FBI. Well, it's the exact opposite is that there are, there are people there who out there who genuinely want to hurt him for his role in the cartoon controversy so much so um, that they track his movements. He, he's on, hit lists and all sorts of really scary stuff. So, he's been named. Uh, I, I did the research on that. He's been actually named in like actual Al Qaeda documents and um, yes. Al Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula and stuff. And yep. one thing that I noticed is he spoke at a conference that we had in Berlin a couple of years ago. And there it was like, I was put in the middle of having to negotiate between the Danes and the Germans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like the mm -hmm. elite German police force and then like the elite Danish police force and, I don't know. I felt like I was kind of in the middle of a cop show there because it's like, well, this is not your territory, bud. This is not your yeah. jurisdiction. <laughs> Actually, I had something similar. It was pretty funny because the the Dane. I forget what the acronym for the Danish um, enhanced police forces, but well, anyone who knows the, it probably would get five hundred euros from us because I yeah I don't think yeah. anyone knows who knows. But uh, there there was an exchange where they were going to actually travel with him, but then didn't because the FBI wouldn't let them carry firearms in Maryland. So then they had to pivot and divert everything to 
American law enforcement. Otherwise, they would have traveled with them. Um, but oh, they couldn't. okay. That's crazy. You yeah. see so many shows and stuff where you just have American FBI agents just hanging out in Prague and Paris and Toronto, and they've got all their <laughs> all their weapons. And, yeah. So, and, and again, all of that to say that here's someone who faces actual threats from people who um, really have brandish weapons, who've killed friends of his, who mm-hmm. have done big actions in places like Paris with the Charlie Hebdo killing. I mean, this is not, um, this is the real, you know, resistance. This is real violence. And yes. there's so much that's happening right now that is just hitting headline upon headline about what we believe is violence or what we think is violence or silence is violence now, David. So if mm-hmm. you're a bit too silent, that's, that's violence. This is real. And I think having, having Fleming on to discuss it, to talk about it, and to give a very, you know, sort of articulate, nuanced approach backed by history. I mean, I know that for him, this is not how he wants to be known because he was like a world renowned Soviet expert, you know, had speaks and writes Russian. He's been able to translate so many things. And then now he's kind of mired in this controversy still almost 20 years later. It's insane. Yeah, it is wild, especially when you, yeah, like you said, you do your research on him and you realize his, his resume as a foreign correspondent living behind the iron curtain and really getting a firsthand look as part of the foreign press corps at what life was like in Soviet Russia. Um, and then now is, is, is just completely known for his involvement um, in this, this scandal uh, really for the crime of, of publishing a cartoon. And you can think that that cartoon was insensitive and offensive, and I can totally understand that. Um, but I think generally in liberal democracies, it's understood that um, all ideas deserve criticism or all ideas should deserve criticism. Uh, and we shouldn't wane uh, away from that. Um, one, by fear of government action, uh, but two, by fear of um, kind of mob rule or however you want to describe it. It's societal and, uh, pressure. And, um, yeah. you know, he, he says like, uh, I, I don't remember the exact term, but he said, you know, it's kind of like an informal blasphemy law. And it's very true. And now there, there's a kind of level where uh, people just say certain things and they're getting canceled, fired, uh, threats of violence. I mean, I've been on the receiving end of, of many of hate mails back in the day. And uh, it's not a pretty thing. And this is not how you want uh, life to go on in, in little L liberal democracies. You know, we want to be able to enjoy our freedoms and our lives. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the only reason that we're even supposed to have governments is that we're protected and, uh, you know, we're not getting slaughtered in the street left and right. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Uh, and and one thing that I think is interesting, which we didn't get a chance to to talk to Fleming about, but I have spoken with him about it before, is whenever we have uh, immigrant communities um, kind of integrate into new societies, there's always a hesitation to have any type of conversation. And I can generally see that point of view, but he very quickly, um, very quickly pointed out that this is actually just part of the integration process. And by having these conversations and making jokes and things like that, it actually shows that they have become part of whatever culture they're entering into. And I think that that's an interesting way to look at it because, I mean, there are all sorts of um, instances where this applies, whether it's about jokes. Uh, I know Dave Chappelle had gotten a lot of flack in the, in, in the past because um, he had made jokes about uh, transgendered people. Um, and his defense was, I make jokes about everybody. And, and I'm, I'm normalizing the fact that these people exist and they have rights and they deserve to be protected. However, that also means that we get to make jokes about everybody else. Uh, we get to make jokes about them like everybody else, which was something that kind of struck me as odd at first. But the more I kind of let it sit in the back of my brain, the more I understood it as, oh, okay, well, yeah, I, we see these people as peers. And because we see them as peers, we engage with them in the marketplace of ideas. And it's a, a signal of, uh, of respect in that way. Um, which I thought was a very interesting way to evaluate that. 
Yeah, and, and there's so much more that's going to come of this. Um, you know, we're looking for better and brighter guests every week. So you guys, uh, we hope that you enjoyed that and we hope you'll continue listening. Uh, you can subscribe to all of our podcast versions of the radio show, consumerchoiceradio.com. Um, we're going to have to sign off here for the hour. It's been a nice one, a quick one, but uh, I think it's been pretty good, David. Yeah, yeah. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, as always, if you have any guests, recommendations, you have any comments, feedback, uh, do reach out to us either on Twitter or uh, directly via email. Uh, we appreciate all of your comments. Uh, if you are listening to us on a podcast, be sure to subscribe uh, and rate uh, our, our show. And uh, thank you again for joining us in the, for another week. Until then.